Father God, the greatest need of the hour right now is for our eyes to be opened to the glory of Jesus Christ. There is not a single need that is greater than that or more profound than that or more necessary than that. And so my earnest prayer right now for me and for my friends is that you'd put aside every distraction, including me and including anything I might say in error, Father God, and that you would anchor us in the truth of your word, that you would be magnified and glorified in us, looking again at what it means to love. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul lays out in very clear terms what it looks like for a Christian to love. He says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, or in of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogance or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love never ends. This is love, Paul tells us. This is Christian love. And you may be surprised that Paul isn't talking about love within the context of marriage, despite how often this passage is used at weddings. Um, it's not a bad thing to use it at weddings. Um, he actually doesn't have marriage in mind at all when he goes through this. He is referring to, quite simply, Christian love. The love between a Christian and another member of the household of God. This love is the love that we have for everyone else who is in God's family. No matter where they were born, no matter where they come from, it is a love that is universal for people in the household of God. And it's incredible on several levels. I mean, listen to what he's saying here. He says, if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and can by faith move mountains, but don't have love, then I am nothing. We tend to, I think, pass over this really quickly, maybe because we hear it so often, but we should pause. Think about what he's saying here. Paul says our lives without this kind of love isn't just diminished. It's not just lacking something. He says, I am nothing without this love. I am nothing. I'm non-existent without this love as a Christian. And he continues by saying that he could even give away everything that he has and be burnt, be killed for the sake of Christ. He could be killed. And 
if at the end of the day, in dying while giving away everything, he doesn't have this love, Paul says, I gain nothing. He doesn't say, I gain less or I gain part. He says, I gain nothing despite giving everything. So apparently the inheritance of the kingdom of God, whatever gain we could get and receive at the end of our lives, isn't just for people who are willing, up to, willing to give up their lives for Jesus Christ. But if we were to take Paul at his word here, this is for people who love others like this passage describes. Paul isn't pulling punches. He is serious about what the heart of a Christian should look like. And he describes this love in the next part of the passage, this part. He describes this love as as a very simple and kind of practical, almost surprisingly practical list. Um, And if you've been to a wedding before, you've heard this specific section probably multiple times. Um, This is the kind of love he's describing here that is expressed in kindness and patience. It is a love that refuses to desire what other people have. And when you have something, it refuses to boast in having it. It is simply content to love. It's a love that's not arrogant or proud. It's a love that's gentle and meek. It's a love that never insists on what we want to do, but rather it is a love that insists what others want to do. Is that not remarkable? That is a remarkable thing. This love is never irritable. This is amazing. About people taking our time. Maybe it's amazing to me because I feel so far from this. About people taking our time and energy and money, but rather this is the kind of love open to be spent and used for the sake of others. And if we are exploited in that spending and being used and our time seems to be wasted, Paul says we don't resent that. We don't resent the wasting of our time. Instead, we love in the middle of that because even though love rejoices in or never rejoices in wrongdoing and rejoices in the truth, we recognize that we need to love instead of resent. And love has joy in God's promises, the truthfulness of God's promises and not getting its own way, which is why this love is capable of bearing all things and enduring all things because it's invincible. This is the kind of love that believes in every circumstance and that hopes in every circumstance and it endures to the very end. In fact, not only does it endure to the very end, but shockingly, This love never ends. Paul says it never ends. Now consider that for a moment. Consider your life as a Christian. The main aspects of our relationship with God, like faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, I mean, that's the root of our justification before God, and hope, the the lifeblood of Christianity, trusting in a future promise of being with Christ, though they are critical, all of those things have an expiration date. There will be a point in time when they cease to exist. When we see Christ and our faith becomes sight, we will no longer need to believe because we'll know. 
And we'll no longer need to hope because our hope will become reality in that moment. Yet Paul says here that the expiration date that, that covers these other dimensions, critical dimensions of the Christian life, is not true about love. Love will never end. It is an experience that you can have right now. You can taste right now that will never go away. Even after 10,000 of ages of years, that should take our breath away. That should take our breath away. Think about it for a moment. My love, my experience of affection for you and your experience of affection for me as Christians and for each other will never end. There's no end date. None. Which is profound. And as we go through the Good Samaritan parable, um, this series that we've been uh, calling Love Thy Neighbor, we've come to the point which it, it is good and right for us to look at this love, Christian love. Not worldly love, I'm talking about Christian love. The first two weeks of our series, we looked at these uh, questions that set up this parable that Jesus is telling. We looked at um, two of these questions that led Jesus to give this story. And then last week, David graciously opened up the first glimpse of love that we actually see in the story itself. And that is, namely, the love that was shown from the Samaritan to this poor and oppressed man, this man who was uh, this poor and repressed man who was embodied by this person who was half dead on the side of the road. And we see the object of love in this parable, this beaten man, physically, financially oppressed in every possible way, hanging on to a thread, beaten within an inch of his life. At that point, Jesus does something. He introduces two characters, two critical characters. And what I want to do today is I want to look at those characters. And I want to ask questions about them. So let's look again at Luke 10. If you have your Bibles with you, please grab them and turn to Luke 10, verse 30. And we are going to look at who they are and we're going to look at what they do. Or another way of putting it, what they do not do. Starting with verse 30, Jesus says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus turns to his audience, to the lawyer who was asking the question and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So it's Jesus telling the story. He could put anyone in this story he wants to. Anyone. He's making this story up. He could have chosen, instead of the priest and the Levite, to put a tax collector or a prostitute or a Gentile or another kind of sinner. Or he could have just even put nobodies in there. He didn't need to call out who they were. He could have just put anyone in there. But he chooses a priest, and a Levite, both of which in Judaism embody the highest religious class of the people of God. In fact, they're even representatives of the people before God in the temple. The priest was of the line of Aaron, and he served directly in the temple, while Levites were kind of the assistants. They were from the broader tribe of Levi, and they assisted in the temple. If anyone, anyone in Jewish culture was close to God, it was these two men. They were serving him day and night, making sacrifices for all the Jewish people. They were enormously significant in the Judaic religion, and yet here they are. Jesus says, these two are the men who pass by on the other side, while the Samaritan, this foreigner, is the one who proves to be a neighbor. He's the one who actually shows love and actually shows mercy. Now, why is this? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he use these two classes of people to make this illustration? There are a lot of possibilities why, and I I know if you've heard a sermon on this, you've probably heard innumerable ones, but the, thing, the question we should be asking here is, what is Jesus' main point? What is Jesus' main point? Why did they ignore a man dying on the side of the road? Why? The main point is this. There's no good reason for them to have done it. No good reason. Because if anyone should have shown love, the love of God for their neighbor, it was These people who knew the law, knew what it required, knew what obedience meant, these two men were those. And the irony here is that this man who was dying on the side of the road came from Jerusalem. Jesus calls it out. He came from Jerusalem, which means that's probably where the priest and the Levites served. They were serving him. He was one of their congregation one of the people they represented before God, and yet it's a man from Samaria who stops and actually loves him. The priest and the Levite were explicitly called to love and care for the people of God, and yet this wounded man from Jerusalem, who belonged to the same people that they should have been loving and caring for, is left dying by them. So again, why is it that Jesus calls out these two religious men He doesn't just use them accidentally. Nothing, Jesus says, is accidental. Nothing. This is by his design. And the reason has to be this. This group, namely people who claim to know God and to know what he's commanded and what he expects from people who are to display his glory, those people are not immune to passing by on the other side of the road. In fact... Those people are the most susceptible to passing by. They are the ones whose hearts are most prone to turn away from someone in need 
and yet it's those people whose very lives should be given and spent to love others. That's why they're in this position. They know God. They know God, and therefore they should love like God loves. And for us, this is an experience that should be intimate for us because we're Christians. We're Christians. We have faith in Jesus Christ, and we know God. That's what eternal life is described as in John 17. The Christian life should be dominated by the reality of love. And these two men in this parable serve as an object lesson for the Christian. And summarize that lesson could go something like this. Don't pass by on the other side. Don't do it. Don't pass by on the other side. Love one another. These men were chosen by God to love and serve the people of Jerusalem, and yet they refused to love someone from Jerusalem when they were given the perfect opportunity, someone who desperately needed it. And Jesus, his point here is that this cannot be true of his people. This can't be true of the people of God. This can't be true of people who claim to know God and know the love of God. And this can't be true of anyone who claims to be a follower or disciple of Jesus Christ. And in John 13, he makes this very clear. Listen to this command from John 13. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, Jesus says, all people will know that we are his disciples, which means that if you don't love, they won't know. They won't know. that The decisive factor in them knowing is love here. It's not Interestingly enough, going to church on Sunday. It's not even reading your Bible. It's not even learning theology and doctrine, though all of those are critically important to the life of the Christian and should not be ignored. The central factor, according to Jesus, of people knowing that we belong to Christ is love. It is love. And what Jesus mainly has in view here is loving one another, disciples of Jesus, loving disciples of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. Love within the context of the family of God. Love between Christians. That's what he's looking at here. And so that's our focus today. And he says here that this is a new commandment, but you know that this isn't quite new. It's new in a way, and we'll talk about that, Love thy neighbor is actually from Leviticus 19.18, which is an old commandment, something they should know already. But that's only part of what Jesus is saying here. Listen to what Jesus says. Love one another just as I have loved you. He's not talking about normal love. He's talking about something else. Love like I love you, which is staggering. So Jesus loved them. Think about this for a second. This is before he dies on the cross. This is before the cross happens. For most of them, they don't even have that on their radar. Jesus must have loved them in a way 
to make this make sense, must have loved them in a way that wasn't at all ordinary, but rather completely extraordinary. So what did that look like? What did it look like for Jesus to love them before the cross? Think about this. Normal life with Jesus. What was he like? What was he like? Was it what he said that made him so loving? Was it how he said it to them? Was it what he was willing to do to care for them, to get them water, to get them food, to do whatever he needed to do to love and show his love for them? Jesus, like I said, isn't talking about the cross yet. He is talking about simple, normal life. And he's saying that we are called to love each other just like he's loved us. That's how the world will know that you belong to me. Love like I love you. They won't know that you're my disciples unless you do this. And we have to imagine that when Jesus loved them, it looked a lot like 1 Corinthians 13. Try to conceive of this mental picture. We have a, sometimes have a wooden picture of Jesus when we read the Bible. We kind of strip away any, any emotional aspects of him. But Jesus was an emotional creature, just like us. So think about Jesus in this way. Jesus was patient with them. He was so patient. He waited for them. He didn't get frustrated with them in a way that, that showed that he was operating in his emotions. He was patient with them and he was loving. Even his rebukes were gracious and loving. And he was kind to them, tender, sweet to them. He never envied anyone in his life, ever, And he never boasted in anything that he had, though Jesus, if anyone in the world should boast, it would be him. But he never boasted. He was never arrogant. He was never rude. He never insisted on his own way. In fact, his entire life, think about who he was, creator God. His entire life was the epitome of selflessness, of laying his life down every day. Jesus to his disciples, to us, is the embodiment of 1 Corinthians 13. He is 1 Corinthians 13 in the flesh, and he is, in this text, inviting them into the same kind of love. And two chapters later, he's going to return to this invitation in what has to be one of the most incredible promises of the New Testament, promises Jesus ever spoke And I want to look at with you today, it is a staggering promise. Um, And here's the deal. Before we look at this, I I want our hearts to be in the right place here. This isn't just a promise made to 11 men 2,000 years ago. This isn't just a promise made to the early church that Paul's writing a letter to in 1 Corinthians. This promise is for us. It's for you. It's for you receive it for yourself as we go through it and look at what he says. And in this promise, as he makes this promise, Jesus is going to show us three massive things. He is going to show us the source of all Christian love, the source, the fountainhead of all Christian love. Then he's going to show us the goal, the purpose of Christian love. And then he's going to show us the outcome What does Christian love look like in the flesh? What does it look like when we show it, when we live it, when we experience it? 
So let's turn to John 15, verse 9, and listen to Jesus say this to his disciples. He's saying it to us 2,000 years later. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus says in this passage that he loves his people. Those who belong to him, Jesus loves them, and he loves them like the Father. God the Father loves him. Now think about that. He is likening his affection towards us as the way that his father loves his son. But there's a problem with that. You and I are sinners. And we are full of defects. Full of a million reasons for Jesus not to love us. And Jesus is blameless, righteous, and perfect. He has no defects in him at all. It is, it is reasonable and rational for God to look at his son and be completely pleased. No sin whatsoever, not a single blemish. And yet Jesus says, I love you like my father loves me. I love you like that love, despite everything contrary. And he is drawing a line from the Father's heart to him and then through him to us. That's the love that he's showing us. Jesus is loving us like his Father. He's loving us with the same love of his Father. In other words, God the Father loves us deeply and that love passes through Jesus Christ as though when he looks at us, we are just like Christ. He doesn't see a difference. He doesn't see a difference. His affections are just as though it was Christ himself. And then Jesus tells his disciples, abide in my love. Abide in my love. Never leave my love. Stay inside my love. And to do that, he says, keep my commandments, keep my word, keep my promises. If we do that, we will abide in his love because this is exactly the relationship he has with his father. He keeps his father's words, he keeps his father's commandments, and he is anchored in that love. Now notice, Jesus never says, earn my love by following commandments. He never says, in order to get my love, you need to merit it by doing my commandments. He simply says, you're experiencing my love, stay there. Stay there. Do not fall prey to the lies of the enemy that there is a better place than my embrace and my affections. Don't believe those lies. Stay with me. Hold on to me in obedience and don't let go. And the reason why we can't let go is in verse 11. Listen to what Jesus says here as he continues his promise. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you. Why? that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So we've seen the source of Christian love is God the Father. God loves Jesus 
and he loves through Jesus to us. We experience that love. That is the love of God. The, the love coming towards us, Christian love that we experience in our hearts, begins with the love of God for us through Jesus. Now Jesus is pointing to the ultimate goal of love. What is the goal of love? What is, what is he after by loving us? This is what it says here. I have spoken these things to you, which includes everything that he's ever spoken, but specifically zeroing on what he's just told us, that um, about the love of God and about it abiding in us. He's spoken, us to, to, he's spoken this to us that his joy may be in us. That his joy, the joy of Jesus Christ might be inside of us and that that newfound joy would be full. Would be full. And so, this is wild. Jesus desires your gladness. He wants you to be glad. But before we define gladness and joy as this vague, general feeling that we have, we should ask the question, joy in what? What is Jesus after here? What is his goal in loving us like this? Because you can't really experience joy unless you have an object to attach it to. You need to have something that it's rooted in. It has, gladness has to be fixed on something like a gift or a present or someone that you love and care for. And so the question is, what is, for Jesus, what is that something? What is the something that he is glad in? And Jesus has already told us. Jesus' joy is in his Father. He delights in God, which is why he keeps his Father's commandments and why he abides in his love. The thing we need to know about commandment keeping, I think we kind of think about commandment keeping is, I got to do these things, and then I get whatever. Everybody keeps commandments. Everybody is obedient to something. We are always obeying something. The human heart is in a perpetual state of obedience. The question is, what are you obeying? Are you obeying the passions of your flesh? Are you obeying the, the desires to do something that you think will give you fleeting pleasure? Or are you obeying God? Humans do what they desire. They do what they desire. I want to go over here, I'm going to go over here. I want to go shopping, I'm going to go shopping. I want to go drive my car, I'm going to go drive my car. We do what we want to do ultimately because we are governed by we, what we love and what we treasure. And Jesus treasures his Father. He treasures his Father. His joy is in God. And so when he speaks these words to us, his joy infiltrates our hearts and we begin to enjoy God like he enjoys his Father. And Christ desires not only that we would experience this love and taste it, he says he wants this love, this joy in our hearts bubbling up to be full. Full. The word in Greek is pleroo and it means complete, perfect, to be brought into fullness. That's hard for us to even conceive. Think about it for a second. A joy that is complete, that is lacking in nothing, a kind of fullness of joy where 
your experience of joy needs no improvement. That's what Christ is talking about here. That's the promise that he's making to us. That's the promise that he's making to you. And so think about this now as you think about like Bible reading, for example, where we see the commandments of Christ. We see his words. This is what he wants us to keep. He wants us to keep and cherish and treasure and obey and live a certain way. Now, his desire to do that isn't just rule following. He's saying, when you read the Bible, when you read the word of God, everything in it, understand what's going on there. To read and receive and embrace the words of Jesus Christ isn't just a task or a duty. It's not either of those things. It isn't recreation. It is a pursuit of joy in God. That's what keeping the commandments and the words of Jesus Christ are. And that joy's focus, like I said, is on God the Father and the Son. And that's why we have the words of Christ. That's why we have Bibles. So when we embrace the the words that are in Scripture, we are seeking to transform our lives so that we would be people about joy. And the commandment keeping that Jesus is referring to here is only possible if it doesn't originate out out of a a desire to, to obey a rule, but rather a pursuit of gladness in the source of the rule. And we see that in verse 12. Listen to what Jesus says here. He says, this is my commandment. So he's telling us now, at the center, I had you keep my commandments to abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So we've seen the source of Christian love. It's God the Father. The heart of God is the source of every love experienced by the Christian heart. And we've seen the purpose. The goal of Christian love is to experience the joy that Jesus has, joy in his Father. And now Paul is pushing and penetrating even deeper into the reality of love. And he's asking, what does that look like? What does it look like for you to love like a Christian should love? Loving with the love of God from the joy that you have in Christ Jesus. What does that look like? And Jesus' answer is in verse 12. A willingness and desire to love exactly as Jesus loved. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. He is inviting us into this radical love that originated with the Father. That's where it came from, the Father's heart. But he's going to do something different than what we saw before. First, when we saw this in John 13, we saw the attributes that we saw in 1 Corinthians 13. We saw these behaviors, these things that we can do with people at a horizontal level. And he loves us like that. He loves us like 1 Corinthians 13. That's what we're called to do. But he presses even further and says, the greatest love that a human being can offer is this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. This is an awesome verse. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying there is no love in the world. There's no love in the world greater than when a person gives himself completely for another. This is the greatest of all loves. It is the greatest love 
that can be experienced by a human being. And that's what this verse is talking about. And Jesus does two things in this verse. First thing is this. He is telling his disciples before the cross, he's telling them how much he loves them. Greater love has no one than this. And second, which is even more radical than that, surprisingly, is he is inviting them to experience this love firsthand. That same sacrificial love. The outcome of God the Father's love through Jesus in us is ultimately being willing to give up our lives for others. This is the command of Christ. This is what the expectation is in in obedience as a disciple of Christ, that a person would be so filled with the love of God and so, so enjoy God in such a, a way that the very giving of their life for another Christian isn't extraordinary, but expected. And I think we sometimes look at the Good Samaritan parable and we think, I mean, I do this when I read it. The man was dying on the side of the road. What was wrong with these guys? If a person was dying on the side of 132nd out there, we'd stop for him. Who wouldn't stop for him? But, and we say, like, why is the priest so heartless? Why is the Levite so heartless that they just pass by on the other side? But when we ask that question, when we think that way, we're actually missing the point of the parable. The point of the parable is this is what you do when someone is dying on the side of the road. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that we should always be willing to sacrificially love people as though their life depended on it. We should always be willing to sacrifice our time, our energy, our life for someone as though their life depended on it. And here's the reason why. Because our life did depend on it. And Jesus loved us. Jesus saw us in our sin, facing justice, facing wrath, and he hung in our place so that we wouldn't have to hang there. That's why we're here right now. The Christian, you guys, me, we exist. We exist specifically because um, <laughs> Christ loved us like this when our lives depended on it. When, it, when we needed it the most, when we were half dead on the side of the road, Jesus didn't do what the priest and the Levite did, refusing to help, refusing to love, passing by on the other side. Instead, he showed the greatest love in the world by dying in our place, laying down his life. And now he says to us, to the Christian, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved and so when we hear this command, we're Christians, we know the gospel, we see the cross, we hear the command come to us, and the next question we ask is, how in the world can I do that? How in the world can I be willing to that? How in the world can I love my brothers and sisters in such a way, like Jesus loved me, where I treat them with the kind of affection and love as though their lives depended on it, and in even willing to give up my own life for them. How in the world do I do that? Where I treat them with the kind of affection that we saw in 1 Corinthians 13. Think about the, 
the language used in 1 Corinthians 13. This is Paul's prayer for the Corinthian church, his hope and his expectation. Listen again to this passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. How in the world are we to do that? How can we do that? How do we love our church family in the way that Jesus is describing? And the answer to this question which Jesus knows that we'd be asking this. His disciples are asking this question as he says this. How is that possible? He knows that it does not come naturally. He knows that we're predisposed to focus on ourselves and not others. He knows that giving up our own lives seems like an impossibility. And the answer is in what he's already said to us. It's in the gospel. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The experience of Christian love in our hearts, the love that we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, the love that Jesus is commanding to us in John, comes only when we saturate our hearts with the reality of the gospel. When we saturate our souls with the concept The question really, how much did Jesus love me in order to die for me, for me? Sinners who are infatuated and predisposed to loving ourselves. That's who we are by nature. We we, we are interested in what we want, what we desire, our own interests. And yet, Even though we're predisposed to that, the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13, how much was it? How much must it have to be for Christ to look at us, though we were so unlovely, and die for us in love? He did it in love. He was not constrained at all. The grace we've been shown is so radical that it is only from seeing, experiencing, tasting, being reminded of, pressing deeper into that grace that we can be freed to experience that grace in loving other people. That's the only way. It's through the gospel. And I want you to listen to how 1 Peter 2 describes this exact experience. It's a short passage. Listen to what, how he describes this. Peter says, For to this you have been called. And he is talking to every one of us. For to this you've been called. This is what you've been called to. This is your calling. If you wanted to know what your calling was as a Christian, this is it. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's our calling, to follow into his steps. So in laying down his life, Jesus not only displayed an example on the cross of what it means to sacrifice your life for another person, but he did that for us. For us. So that the example could be obeyed, could be followed. Without the cross, it is impossible to love like this. That's what suffered for you means in this passage. The cross didn't just show us the love of God. The cross purchased for us 
the experience of the love of God, and it is in seeing and embracing and saturating our souls with this love that we are freed to love. So we must be, as Christians, if we want to love the way 1 Corinthians 13 shows, constantly filling our hearts with the gospel of grace. Because we didn't earn this. There is no way for a Christian to love the way we're supposed to if we think that we deserved the mercy of God. That was the problem with the priest. That was the problem with the Levite. They didn't get it. They don't deserve God's grace, but he freely gives it to them. And so Jesus, in the Good Samaritan parable, is pleading with us, don't pass by on the other side. The love that purchased your life on the cross is the same love that purchased your ability to lay down your life. Let me repeat that. The love that purchased your life on the cross is the same love that purchased your ability to lay down your life. So as we take communion and sing in the next few minutes, as we worship, please make this your prayer. I'm going to make this my prayer because I see the delta between my life and 1 Corinthians 13, and it is massive, and I don't want that to exist. I want to love like Paul has called us to love, what Christ is saying. So as we take communion, as we receive the elements, as we worship in the next few moments, please make this your prayer that we would look at the cross of Christ that we would look at what Christ did in dying for us, for me and for you, and that that would drive us to sacrificially love our brothers and sisters, even if it costs us our lives. And we are praying for a miracle. This is not something we can do on our own. We are praying for a miracle. Think about it for a moment. If everything I've said today is true, if, if it corresponds with the reality in God's word, this love is not a chemical love, that we experience ephemerally. This is not a sentimental love. This love originated in the heart of the eternal God. It never had a beginning. It never had a beginning. And we're asking Christ to take that love which he received from his Father, and to pour it into our hearts so that from our deep joy in God, we would be willing to set aside our desires, set aside our wants, set aside even our needs to love and serve and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ as though their lives depend on it. That's the kind of love that the world needs to see. That's the love of God a radical, otherworldly love that will never end. And so let's pray for God to do this in us today. Heavenly Father, this love with which Christ loved us is impossibly huge. And for weak people like myself, it feels like an impossibility to even conceive of loving people in this way, to love them like Jesus loved them. 
But we know that with you, all things are possible. There is nothing that is impossible with you. And so as we receive the elements today in communion, and as we um, lean our hearts into your presence in worship, I pray that you would so transform the affections of your people, whether slowly or quickly or however you deem fit, that we would love like Jesus loved. That we would love like he loved. That we'd be willing to give up our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would feel a bond with them, rooted in the reality that that love will never end. That will, it'll never end. Everything, the stars are going to go away one day. The universe is going to be folded up like a garment. But the affection and love given to us by the Heavenly Father through Jesus for our brothers and sisters in Christ will never end. Help us feel something of that reality today. Help us taste something of that awesome, incredible fact. And help us experience what it means to love like Jesus loved. I'm asking this in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen.